0: Happy New Year, Murder and Mediumship fans! We're kicking off this year with an episode that has been asked for frequently the gruesome murder of Elizabeth Short, otherwise known as the Black Dahlia. Before I get to it, I'd like to go through the formalities here, of course. As you know, Murder and Mediumship is a compilation of true crime stories interwoven with my intuitive insight about each case. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and in no way am I accusing anyone of a crime. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. I'm your host, Katherine Galvin, true crime lover, seeker of justice, and intuitive medium, and this is Murder and Mediumship. You guys were so good to me through the start of the show in 2021, and since the premiere of the show on March 1st, 48 episodes have been released. As we move into 2022, we're kicking off with a few well-known cases and also, as usual, featuring some of the lesser-known and more overshadowed ones. My Spotify listeners, you can now leave ratings on Spotify, so run and drop some stars and leave some kind words for murder and mediumship. The more ears that we reach, the more stories of underserved victims we can tell. Thank you for everyone who has already left a review. I think we're up to 97, which I am so excited about because that's literally like double the amount of episodes that we have. And for such a young podcast, I'm just really proud of that and happy to know that you guys are enjoying what you're hearing. So thank you for your kind words and the beautiful reviews. And this month is also the start of something different. And while I can't have someone on every single week, I am going to have a guest host on as much as possible. This week's guest host is my good friend and patron of the murder and mediumship community, Chelsea Ayers. Chelsea is a fellow true crime addict and is someone I met through doing intuitive readings and my first podcast, Project Healing. Chelsea, are you so excited to be here? I am pumped to be your
1: first guest host. This is so cool. You sound so pumped. Um (laughs) (laughs) I always sound pumped. You know me, Miss Enthusiastic. I know. Okay.
0: So Chelsea can be discussing someone's birthday or greatest achievement with the same tone of voice as she will be discussing the Black Dahlia murder with us. And that, that is a hundred percent true. It's so true. That <laughs> is the case today. So here we go. The first show of the new year and it's a biggie. Most people have heard of the Black Dahlia, so much so that it's likely you have more familiarity with that title, the Black Dahlia, than you do the victim's actual name, Elizabeth Short. On January 15, 1947, Betty Bursinger was strolling through the Limerick Park neighborhood in Los Angeles with her three-year-old daughter on her way to pick up a pair of shoes from the shoe repair shop. As she approached the vacant lot, she saw what she thought at first was a mannequin, though she wasn't exactly sure what what she was seeing, she recalls in interviews that it looked very, very white, almost like porcelain. And concerned for the children who would soon be passing on their way to school, Betty ran to a nearby house to call the police to report the strange sight. Upon arriving on the scene, police discovered one of the most gruesome and horrific sights they had ever seen. And this, I don't know if you saw in your research, Chelsea, but did you read that she actually continued on her errands after she reported this?
1: No, I did not. Um, I guess she really needed those shoes. Um. <laughs> so, that's, like what the heck?
0: That's what I thought too. I was like, "Wow, I can't believe she kept shopping like that after she found a dead body." But I think she really was in such like a state of shock or didn't even realize what she had actually seen cuz she had passed it. By the time she made the call, she was like two blocks away, and I wonder if she just wasn't quite sure. I can only imagine like later that day, listening to the radio news or something and hearing like what was found in that park? And her husband was probably thinking, like, what the hell happened? All you did was go get shoes today, and this is what's on the news. So, anyway, it, Betty. what they found was 22-year-old Elizabeth Short laying face up and naked. Her body was split in two at the waist, and her eyes were wide open. Her hands were positioned over her head, and her elbows were slightly bent. Her detached lower half was positioned with the legs straight out and spread open, She had clearly been hit over the head and pieces of her flesh were cut off of her body. I want to say this, too, if you look at the pictures, and I really, really say that with caution. If you look at the pictures, it's not just like the surface cut off a little piece of skin. It's like a chunk is taken out. Did you see those? I did. It's like layers and layers
1: deep. Yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on who you are, um, the pictures are very graphic. You can see all of the things. So, especially
0: yeah. considering it's the forties, I was really kind of surprised about that. But I mean, I guess you're also coming out of like a post World War era. Maybe they were just so.
1: Well, so I learned that back in those days, news reporters had access to the cops like calls. So there was reporters on the scene before the police. So that's Mm -hmm. why there's so many photos.
0: Oh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, that does Mm -hmm. make sense. And they also had completely trampled the scene as well, which we will get to. But if any more shock can even be added to such a horrific scene, the corners of her mouth each had three inch cuts coming up and out, like a twisted, morbid smile carved into her delicate white flesh. If you can believe it, there was hardly any blood at the scene, if any, at all. Her body was scrubbed clean and placed there post mortem. And Chelsea mentioned too that it's called what is it called when they cut the the face like Glasgow that?
1: Glasgow or Glasgow.
0: A Glasgow smile. smile. Yeah, I think that was something that was like, um, it was like a Scottish gang thing, right? I think so, yeah. I feel like this is something my husband talked about during some show that I didn't retain the information of. <laughs> but it is, It's called. I think it is called the Glasgow smile. It reminded me of like the Joker's face in Batman, that yeah. really overpronounced twisted smile. So the victim was identified through the use of sound photo, which was essentially an early form of sending a fax. I got to say, I nerded out a little bit at this fact and thought like this is one of the first times that they were able to use technology like this in order to identify someone. So the new use of technology allowed the um, Los Angeles Police Department to get photos of Schwartz's fingerprints to them quickly. And thus, the FBI was able to identify her within an hour of receiving her prints. And I think what's kind of funny to me as someone who's been in government and whose husband works for the government, the way that the FBI still, like, they have it on blast that it took them 56 minutes. They're like, it didn't even take us an hour. It's 56 minutes, and we had her ID. Congratulations, guys. You don't work that quickly anymore. But I digress. She happened to be in their system twice, once for being printed before employment as a clerk on an army base, and once just months after being employed there for underage drinking in 1943. A flyer was circulated by the LAPD that read, Female, American, 22 years, 5'6", 118 pounds, black hair, green eyes, very attractive, bad lower teeth, Fingernails chewed to quick. The subject found brutally murdered, body severed and mutilated. January 15th, 1947 at 39th and Norton. Subject on whom information wanted last seen January 9th, 1947 when she got out of a car at Biltmore Hotel. At that time, she was wearing a black suit, no collar on coat, probably cardigan style. White fluffy blouse, black suede, high-heeled shoes, nylon stockings, white gloves, full-length beige coat, carried black plastic handbag, two handles. And they even list the dimensions of the handbag, which just like kind of, like it's very clear that a man wrote this up. But anyway, she had a black address book, which is very important. Subject readily makes friends with both sexes and frequented cocktail bars and night spots. On leaving car, she went into lobby of Biltmore and was last seen there. Inquiry should be made at all hotels, motels, apartment houses, cocktail bars, and lounges, nightclubs to ascertain whereabouts of victim between dates mentioned. In conversation, subject readily identified herself as Elizabeth or Beth Short. I feel like the wording and the verbiage of this is very, very, very um, archaic, obviously. Um, yeah. I don't know. It kind of... I think it's interesting that they automatically point everyone to cocktail bars and night spots. I think they already kind of had an inkling of what kind of person that they thought that she was and where to look for her. Even before really finding much out about her, they're seeking this information, knowing that this is where they're going to find it. So nearby the scene were disposed concrete bags, and it's not known whether or not they were related to the victim. It's been speculated her body could have been carried there. I believe it was two or three bags, and I guess there's a couple pieces of her. Maybe that is how they carried her there. But upon arrival, one of the officers actually shut her eyes. He immediately shut her eyes, which is hello, you're messing up evidence right there. You're walking all over it. Civilians were walking about the crime scene and into the vacant lot, and no one was taking proper precautions, disturbing the crime scene and any evidence left behind, even by the 1940s standards. And like Chelsea said, photographers were there before even the police really were there. They were all over taking photos. There was actually, I was listening to I can't even remember. I've listened to so many podcasts about this and so many YouTube videos and so many interviews. And there's just so much information out there, which almost makes it more difficult to really get to like the, the good information, the information that you can really put um, some stock into. But one of the interviews had said that I, I believe one of the detectives was asking for a picture with the body before the other had arrived or, or something like that. There's a There's a picture of one of the detectives with the body. Like, how disrespectful. Right. So the autopsy, well, Elizabeth quickly became known as the Black Dahlia because of her affinity for sheer black clothing and her jet black dyed hair. So the autopsy was performed by Frederick Newbar, the L.A. County coroner, listed the official cause of death as hemorrhage and shock due to concussion of brain and lacerations of face. I want to dig in here at the very beginning and offer an, a piece of intuition. I wholeheartedly believe that those facial lacerations were done before she passed. I think that was definitely something that was one of the initial injuries to her. Um, and I will definitely say more on that in a little bit. Uh, Chelsea, are you chomping at the bit to add something there? Oh, I'm just saying
1: uh, she must not have looked like she was having a very good time. So they were going to make her look like she was, huh? Yeah pretty much. So LAPD never officially said what was used to sever her body, but it
0: was believed to be done with a butcher knife. I'm not sure if I agree with this. Obviously, I'm not trained in any kind of medical training whatsoever, but I feel like a butcher knife wouldn't have left as clean of a cut as it was described as having by others because essentially it, it was done with like, um, Like surgical, what's the word I'm looking for? Finesse or or whatever. It was done very, very intricately. So Nubar also noted multiple lacerations to her forehead, all over her forehead. Her entire body was covered in lacerations and tiny abrasions. And her trunk was completely severed by incision, almost straight through her abdomen. I want to say it was like, what, between the third and fourth vertebrae, it was something that was like very difficult to do and achieve. And it was something taught in medical schools at that time. So anyway, just above her pubic area, there were multiple crisscross lacerations that went through the skin and soft tissues. And further, her intestines and both kidneys had lacerations in them as well. In the photos, you can actually see her intestines laying just below her torso. So that is how detailed they are. If you don't want to see it, don't look. That's all we're saying. Again, it only gets worse as she had a flap of skin cut off of her left thigh where she had a small tattoo of a rose, and it was placed high up inside of her vagina. There were clear indications of sexual assault as her – and you guys, it's only going to get worse if you don't want to hear the autopsy. Fast forward here a good like 30 seconds. There were clear indications of sexual assault as her anal opening was, quote, markedly dilated. The opening actually measured at one and one quarter inches wide, and – I shudder even thinking about what could have been done to her to open it to that extent anyway. In that area, there were yet again multiple abrasions as well. It is believed that the anal injuries were received post-mortem as if that provides any relief at all to what she endured during her torture. I don't know that there's any way to say this gently either, but her stomach had what was at first an unknown substance in it, but ultimately was determined to be feces. So whoever killed her... ...forced her to eat feces. Her body had been cleaned from top to bottom... ...by the killer who had even washed her hair... ...and it was drained of all blood... ...prior to being dumped at the scene... ...where she had been discovered not long after. As I'm reading this... ...again, speaking intuitively... ...this is not a known fact at all... ...but I do already feel that there were at least two people... ...involved with her actual murder and her death... I do also believe there was a potential for a third person there, but off the bat, just with the autopsy, I'm going to say there were definitely two people involved. LAPD was able to send photographs of Short's fingerprints to the FBI via sound phone, think like early form of a fax, and received a positive ID within an hour of sending her prints. The sound phone was so new that it took multiple tries to get the images over to the FBI in a way that they could actually be used, but nonetheless they were able to identify her as Elizabeth Short. Her prints were actually in the system twice, once due to applying for and receiving a job as a clerk at a store on an army base, and the second time her prints made it to the system when she was arrested for underage drinking in 1943, within months of getting that job. So what do we know for sure? Short was the third of five daughters born to Cleo and Phoebe Mae Short. Cleo abandoned the family when Beth was only five years old and left for California, and according to some sources, he took one of the five daughters with him. Did you read that? No.
1: Okay. But that explains I- why there's so many discrepancies because some of them, it says that there was four daughters and some it says there's five.
0: Okay, yeah. So I had seen different things as well. And it's interesting because of one of the things that she tells um, because of something she says to a suspect later about her sister. And I was kind of confused there as well. If Anyway, and we're going to get there, but there's there's definitely discrepancy over how many daughters were living with her mom with Phoebe and if the dad had taken any with her I also had read in some places that he left his car on a bridge to kind of make it seem as if he had died or jumped over the bridge so that they actually thought he was dead for a while. Um, and I read that he tried to come back and I've read that he never showed his face around there again. so as far as her early life goes, really not a lot is known. According to some sources he took one of the five daughters with him. Born in Medford, Massachusetts, Elizabeth would move to Florida with her family. She waited tables and worked as a clerk as her mom struggled to care for the other children as a single mother in the 1940s. She would move a few times between Medford, Massachusetts and Florida, but ultimately went out to L.A. where her father was. And after making amends with him, she would move in with him, but only for a short while because his drinking would again escalate and she didn't want to be near him and he didn't want to be near her. And that was the end of that beautiful
1: reunion. Um, Did you have anything to add about her, Dan? I only was going to add, she moved back and forth between Florida and Medford because of her like lung issues, I guess. So maybe that's where the discrepancy is because she was not always living with the mom. That's
0: true too. Yeah. Yeah. So she had lung sickness that made it easier for her to live in that warmer climate. So she didn't want to be up in uh, Medford when it was cold as well. That's absolutely right. And they didn't even move down there because of her condition. They moved down there to be closer to one particular side of the family, I think, too. So. So there are many tales about her being in serious relationships with one military person to the next, but no one ever could really validate the authenticity of these tales. It's pretty widely speculated that Elizabeth was always more committed to these relationships than perhaps the men were, and even possible that some of them were completely fabricated. Um, and we could get into her dating history, but oh lord, I think that would be a whole episode in and of itself. When she arrived in Los Angeles. She moved in with her father, Cleo, and started waiting tables and pursuing stardom, waiting in lines to be an extra in various movies and trying out for parts. To my knowledge, she never had an agent but believed she would make it, and it seemed she inconvenienced many with her belief in being able to cash in as a Hollywood star one day. I think, too, that she kind of gave her family this idea that she was doing a lot better than she actually was, back home because I I don't believe that they knew that she was struggling to this extent. I think she was painting that picture of making it and, and doing really well, but she definitely was not. So rejection after rejection and her father drinking, becoming an issue. She went down to San Diego, but would move back up to LA not long before being murdered. The more research that I did and the more stories that I read, it became clear that Beth was someone who didn't mind imposing on the generosity of others. While staying in LA, she often was found in nightclubs and, use, and nightclubs and bars using her good looks to get men to buy her meals and a drink. Rumor has it that she wasn't much of a drinker, but that she would go without eating if someone wasn't buying her meal at a bar. She was labeled as a tease by many patrons and by those whom with she kept company, as it would seem that she rarely gave them what they anticipated getting in return for their kindness and generosity with her. No good deed goes unpunished, right? Or unrewarded? In this case. (laughs) So I can only imagine what could happen if you reject the wrong person and their anger gets the best of them. Shortly before her death, a movie attendant, Dorothy French, took pity on her and invited Elizabeth to stay with her mother and herself for a night rather than hiding out, sleeping in the movie theater. Elizabeth outstayed her welcome and offered nothing in the way of financial compensation, and like with others, was always promising that she'd have money when she got back. And she knew when she got her break, excuse me, not when she got back. And she knew that her break was coming soon, according to the Frenches. And this is where it gets a little bit weird. So this is around Christmas 1946, right? And she dies in January of 1947. So we're talking December, just about a month before she dies. According to the Frenches. whenever anyone would knock on the door at their home, Beth would appear to be afraid and she would hide. She would place phone calls from the neighbor's phone and receive them there as well. And after a few weeks of this, right around Christmas of 1946, Beth was asked to leave the residence. She would stay wherever she could, but never for long, as there always seemed to be a problem with her. And by a problem with her, I mean like others couldn't keep putting, putting up their cash and their food and all of these things for someone who was not giving back on their end as she needed to be. And one of the people with whom she would board with was a nightclub owner who also owned a house behind a nightclub, wealthy Danish businessman Mark Hansen. I'd put Beth up twice in his house behind the club, and from what I could find, he would put up a lot of younger girls there. I'm not sure that this was, like, if this was, like, a safe place for them or what, and I'm truly not thinking that that's what it actually was. I get more of, like, um, hook-up-and-hang-out, like, brothel kind of vibes, yeah? Yeah. Um, And if you're a tease, that's probably not where you want to be. And I'm truly, like I said, I don't think that it was like a safe house by any means, but Beth was asked to leave and Hanson threw her out. Various sources also say that she didn't go quietly and that she had to ask an associate, possibly Leslie Dillon to help him get rid of her. He had asked an associate. And that being said, I'm also getting like images of her not again, like upholding her end of things. I think that she was expected to give to those who would frequent the house in a way that she was unwilling to. And because she was staying there for free, it wasn't okay. I don't know if you read it anywhere either, but there are other sources that say that Mark Hansen kind of had a thing for her and that she never gave him what he wanted. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I read that she turned him down multiple times. But I also read that like the apartments or whatever they were behind the club were used for like grooming young starlets like and coaching them in their um, careers for like partial nudity films. That makes sense. That Mm -hmm. makes so much
0: sense. That's interesting. So another thing that kind of comes to me over this, too, is that when he asked her to leave. Obviously, and I'm going to lose my train of thought here, but when he asked her to leave, he I don't think that he really wanted her to go, but he also was done being shot down, right? Like, how many times can you give someone something and not get what you want? Not saying that what he wanted was fair um, or appropriate at all, but I very much believe that he felt he was being made to look like a fool and that was not okay with him. Um, he was a well-respected businessman and there are other sources that will say that there is nothing to say that he had ties to the mob or that he was anything other than a businessman. But Hey, I mean, if we all knew who was in the mob, would it really, there be a point to being in the mob? I don't know. I don't think so. (laughs) Regardless, we know that on January 9th, 1947, this was the last time Elizabeth was seen alive. Oh, I want to go back real quick. Um, Mark Hansen, so they had said, other people had said that they had seen this shorter, dark-haired man kind of like following her around. Like he was frequently there and like in his car and he would give her money and he would do things for her and he would always bail her out when she needed help financially, right? Like she would always get the money and it was always from him. I have to imagine, and I'm going to say as well, that I wholeheartedly believe that this is the person that people were seeing, that it was Hansen.
1: I really think that it was him. Oh, you think so? After all the things I heard, I think it's Maurice Clement, which was like the henchman for the mob. um, Ooh. So he would have been following. So he's tied to Mark Hansen. Mm
0: hmm. Mm. Okay. That makes sense. I like this. And see, this is a perfect indication a perfect example of how intuition works and also why we will never say that we are here to solve any crimes because if I'm picking up Mob Connection and Mark Hansen, he then has a tie to this other person. It it all makes sense. But this is exactly it. These are pieces of the puzzle. So thank you. Um, we know that January 9th, 1947 was the last time that Elizabeth was seen alive. And according to Red Manley, a friend of Elizabeth's, He had met her just before Christmas when he was given a work assignment in San Diego. So he was coming from L.A., going down to San Diego, where she had relocated to briefly. And he claimed that nothing had happened between them, but that when he had been sent to San Diego again, he wired her to let her know he'd be in town. Manly was a married man with a young baby at home, four or five months old, I believe. And according Mm -hmm. to him, this beautiful beautiful example of a perfect husband and father. He was, quote, figuring things out with his wife and had to, quote, see if he still loved her or not. So Beth was a test of his devotion to his wife. Well, here's the test, dude. You, you failed by thinking you had to step out on your wife who just had your baby, stupid ugly ass. I don't even know if he was ugly. I'm just saying. So He I feel is something. now. Yeah, he sucks. Okay, so I hope he's covered in genital warts. Anyway, um <laughs> I'm sure he's long gone, and that was rude. Elizabeth was that test for him, and the second time that he saw her, January 8th, 1947, he asked, she had asked him for a ride back to L.A., and he agreed to drive her back up the next day. He had business in town, he was a salesman, I believe, and he had sales calls to make while he was there. According to Manley, he drove her to the Biltmore, where she had said that she was meeting her sister, Miss Adrian West. Now, this is interesting because if you can find the interview between Manley and journalist Aggie Underwood, you see that he asks Elizabeth, where are you meeting your sister? And without waiting for her to answer, he asks the Biltmore, to which she responds, yes. He essentially answered the question for her and she agreed. Whether that means anything or not, I'm not entirely positive. But from what I understand, Elizabeth was either very chatty Or had nothing to say about her personal life. And it was no in-between. So, and in even trying to connect with her, I didn't feel the strong connection. Most of this was done with more of an intuitive insight, a psychic insight, than a mediumship one. Anyway, she says that she's meeting her sister Adrienne West at the Biltmore. And Manly helps her check her bags at the Greyhound Station in L.A. And then they went back to the Biltmore. Upon arriving there, Elizabeth asked him to check with the front desk to see if her sister had arrived and that she was going to use the restroom. Unlike Elizabeth, with her dark hair and her gorgeous pale skin, her sister was supposedly a blonde. So while the hotel had no record of her sister being there or having a reservation... Manly would then approach other blondes that he saw at the hotel and ask them if they were indeed Miss Adrian West, which, of course, none of them were. He claims that as it got later, he told Elizabeth that he had to go and probably back to his poor wife, right, who deserves like all sorts of things and also to be with someone better than that. But anyway, he claims that it got later. He told her she, he had to go and that she was making a phone call in the lobby, but that it was the last time he had seen her. And this was January 9th, 1947. Anything on Manly that you would like to add?
1: I'm just curious. Like, what do you feel on that? Because I kind of feel like she was dawdling, like trying to get him to leave. Yes. Okay.
0: Hundred percent. Hundred percent. I think that she was dawdling. That is a perfect way to put it. She wanted him gone because he probably would have had all sorts of feels about what was going to happen and whether it was jealousy or not. And and I don't think that it was. I think that manly. If, so I wasn't able to find the original interview between him and Aggie Underwood, who, by the way, is like the first city editor of a newspaper ever and was an incredible crime reporter, which was completely not a thing for women at the time. They were given like really silly celebrity stories and nothing of importance. And she was basically like, nah, no, fuck that. I'm going to do this. Excuse me. Move aside. And she was phenomenal. But. Just to, like, toot the horn of a sister, I think that's worth saying. However, I found a copy of the interview, but I can't prove 100% that it is everything that was said on the record. However, at the end of that interview, Red kind of says, like, I will never step out of my wife again. And it kind of makes me laugh because, I mean, if this is the first time you're actually doing something like this and I feel that it really was with him – what better way to really scare you from ever cheating again than having the last person to like the person that you were stepping out with or trying to step out with is found dead days after you're the last one to see her alive? Like, it's not mm-hmm. a good look, bro. Not a good look at all. So no one knows what happened in those days between the ninth and the 15th, though. And, and it's interestingly enough, hers wasn't the only crime scene found in Los Angeles that morning. It's where we break for an ad. I know that a lot of you are listening, a lot of you listening are interested in true crime, obviously, or you wouldn't be listening, but I also know that a lot of you are curious as to how to develop your own intuition. So starting February 1st, I'll be hosting a six week course on intuitive development, and we are going to cover the basics of grounding and protecting your energy, connecting as a psychic and as a medium, and what it means to be an empath. The best part of this program is that it's available to most everyone as the cost is on a sliding scale basis. You pay what you feel comfortable paying and all calls will be recorded. So if you can't make it live, you'll receive the replay in your inbox within 48 hours of the class. I am so excited for this opportunity, as many have expressed an interest in developing their intuition but not knowing where to start. Here's where you start, and you get to start immediately. Spots are filling up fast, and if you're ready to learn how to connect as well, then click the link in the show notes and grab your spot. Today. Alright. January 15th, 1947, a second crime scene was discovered. And you hear a lot less about this one. This one. The owner of the Astor Motel, Henry Hoffman, discovered cabin three of his motel had been absolutely covered in blood and feces. This is just blocks away from where the Black Dahlia was found. It was all over the floors and walls of the bathroom and bedroom. And in cabin nine, there was a bundle of women's clothing wrapped in brown paper and also stained with blood. However... Being the stand-up businessman that Henry was, he had just recently been arrested for beating his wife only four days prior. So wanting to avoid any trouble with law enforcement at all, he cleaned up the horrifying mess, going so far as to soak and burn the blood stained sheets. When police visited later in the week to inquire about Elizabeth Short, as they had said, check all motels, all hotels, right? Here they were. Henry failed to mention his findings to law enforcement. And I'm not even completely sure how this ended up coming
1: out, but eventually it did. Chelsea, do you know how they found out? I think his wife reported it. She was probably a little tired from getting beat four days prior and was like, I'm going to give you up, bud. She's like, he didn't do it, but I'm going to send him away, right? Like, <laughs> she's mm-hmm. done. I don't
0: I hope that it was her. But as it would turn out, a person of interest had actually been staying at the Astro Motel. At the end of January, a letter arrived to the LA Examiner, the newspaper. The envelope was labeled, was labeled Heaven is Here using clippings from newspaper. And inside the envelope was Elizabeth Short's birth certificate, social security card, personal photos, and an address book embossed with the name Mark Hansen on it. That address book provided police with 75 more names of men that they would track down, most of whom had admitted to only meeting her once and never again or not even remembering having met her at all. Mark Hansen himself was found and told law enforcement that she had indeed stayed at one of his houses and corroborated the idea that she was a drifter with no real place to call her own. How convenient, Mark. More letters would arrive and many copycat letters as well. Countless men and even some women would confess to her killing, but none were the true killer of the Black Dahlia. All of these false confessions and false leads made it difficult for police to investigate the important or relevant leads. I have to be honest, though, I don't feel like they really took it all that seriously or found it all that pressing as they truly believed that she was just a tramp who more or less had it coming based on her lifestyle and the people with whom she associated, I think it would have garnered more attention and a higher level of commitment from the police department had she been a higher class woman. Married more well-established, right? Yeah, for sure. All right. So, in keeping with our near half an hour episodes, I don't want to stretch your ears for too long, my friends. So what I would like to say is that obviously this case has never been solved or we wouldn't be discussing it today. However, I do believe that a certain level of corruption was ongoing that allowed her case to remain unsolved. I do believe that law enforcement knew who was responsible and even famous journalist Aggie Underwood had expressed that she knew who the killer was, but was conveniently promoted to city editor as she was working the murder of the Black Dahlia, maybe to keep her away from the truth of it. Regardless, to come back next week to hear more about two of the most well-known suspects, George Hodel, whose handwriting supposedly matched the letters sent to the examiner, and Mark Hansen, as well as his associate, who we will soon learn about. Thank you so much for tuning in, you guys, and we'll catch you next week on Murder and Mediumship. Go leave us five stars.